Lord, we again thank you for your word that you have given and preserved, and uh, we thank you for uh, all the different aspects of, of communication that we find in it, and the parts of speech, and the figures of speech, and, and so on and so forth. And we pray again, Lord, that you would give us uh, the ability to interpret it well, and that we might know you and divide your word accurately and faithfully. So, Lord, we uh, pray that you would strengthen us to this end and that you would be honored in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as we um, continue here this study on some of the uh, different aspects of God's Word and the skill to try to uh, interpret it well, uh, of course, we've been talking about the figures of speech. We started with the figures of comparison. And uh, you recall that we looked at um, simile and metaphor, personification, anthropomorphism, and, uh, and then we've talked here about uh, the figures of substitution. And so last time we looked briefly at synecdoche and metonymy, and these big fancy words simply mean they're substituting one thing for another. And so for synecdoche, it's a part for the whole. And so if you're talking about, um, uh, we use the one um, passage there in Psalm, let's see, what was that? Um, Psalm 122, where the feet are in the gates, which obviously doesn't just mean their feet, but their whole person. Uh, or Ephraim is a substitution for the northern kingdom, you know, these kind of things. And so... Um, uh, and then for metonymy, this is a substitution of an attribute. And so uh, God's hand, uh, which of course is anthropomorphism, uh, this is a substitution for his power. So we speak of God's hand refers to his power. God's ear refers to the fact that he hears and even sees everything and so forth. Um, and um, last time, uh, some of the passages we looked at, we saw several figures of speech in one verse or, or a short section. And sometimes it can be hard to know what is what here. Is it synecdoche or metonymy or whatever? Um, but uh, regardless, as we look at the figures of speech, it is designed to help us to understand something about God and what he has done. Um, and so... <clears throat> um, uh, just a, a brief look at these things. Um, again, the goal here is to understand all of God's Word, not just the parts that we understand rather easily or the parts that we like, but everything that He has preserved for us in His Word. And uh, as I've mentioned before, the figures of speech sometimes um, are extremely helpful, but sometimes they're um, very confusing and can lead to uh, a misunderstanding of God's word if we don't interpret them well. Um, so I wanted to address just two other figures of speech, um, just kind of generally here. And um, uh, we, we certainly can talk about a number of different things here, but um, the next one I wanted to talk about briefly is what is called the dramatic irony. Dramatic irony. All right. The point here simply is the outcome is the opposite of what was intended. Okay. 
or even what was expected, you could say. And so your intention may be one thing, and it turns out to be the opposite, or you expect something to happen, and the opposite takes place. So, um, <clears throat> you know, maybe we could talk about the 1980 Olympics and the hockey game. You know, nobody expected the amateur American hockey players to beat the mighty professional Russians, but that's what happened, you might say is dramatic irony. Or uh, nobody expected Trump to win in 2016, um, and of course nobody expected the left to not lose this time with all of their schemes and so on. Um, or the outcome of the Russia collusion was to get Trump out of office, and the outcome was not what they we're hoping for, you know, these kind of things. It's the opposite of what was intended or expected. Now, <clears throat> we see this used in the scriptures in a variety of ways, and some extremely significant ways, as we'll see here in a moment. So let's look at a few examples. <clears throat> let's turn then to Psalm 9 here, first of all. Psalm 9, here this Psalm of David, and uh, note verse 15, it says, The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, and the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. So here you see a dramatic irony. They, they, the opposite occurred from what they intended and what they expected they have been caught, though they were trying to catch the righteous uh, and so forth. So the harm they intended against God's people turned out against them. Um, we see uh, the same idea if you turn to Psalm 37 uh, here, in this Psalm of David. And uh, beginning of verse 12, these uh, few verses here, Psalm 37, verse 12, The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth, the Lord laughs at him, and he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. The same idea, wicked uh, attempt to show enmity against the seed of the woman, and it comes back to harm themselves. Um, and then, if you turn to Psalm 28, or sorry, Proverbs 28, um, here we now see the same idea in a proverb. Uh, Proverbs 28 and verse 10. Psalm, or sorry, Proverbs 28, verse 10. Whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, he himself will fall into his own pit. But the blameless will inherit good. Now this is certainly a recurring theme, not just because I picked three examples of it, but it is a recurring theme in the scriptures of this dramatic irony, and it's such an encouragement to God's people, isn't it? We see the wicked prospering all around us, even today, not just in, in David's day, and um, we have the same expectation that God will cause them to fall flat on their face. Uh, in one way or another, um, eventually. All right, let's turn back then to 
Second uh, Chronicles and chapter 26. All right, Second Chronicles 26, and uh, um, beginning in verse 16, we see the story of Isaiah. And when he was strong, in uh, he was strong. Sorry, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord, besides the incense altar. Um, And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him in there uh, on his forehead. He was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of Acts of Uzziah, from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote. So Uzziah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of burial, which belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. You see the dramatic irony here. Here Uzziah is trying to get into the temple, even to places where he does not belong. And in the end, he can't even go to the temple at all, even the places where he could go. And so uh, we see this reversal of fortunes, as it were. Um, and, and so this we could call dramatic irony um, or in some ways, uh, the punishment is fitting to his crime. He crossed into the temple where he didn't belong, so now he can't go to the temple at all because of the leprosy. <laughs> all right. Well, let's maybe do it this way. Um, another example, of course, is in the book of Esther. Who can give us the summary of the dramatic irony from the book of Esther? great and dramatic irony in that case. Um, Uzziah is not unimportant, but here you have the whole nation really being affected uh, by uh, Haman and Mordecai and Queen Esther and so forth and this whole thing. Uh, obviously, it's also very individual with, with Haman and, and how it came back upon himself here in this way. 
Um, so, uh, you know, an obvious thing. Now, notice what we're ha- seeing here. We, with with some of these, like simile and metaphor, synecdoche and metonymy, and such, that is very specific. And it might be a, a particular word or phrase or 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 even a verse where we see the idea. This sometimes is in a verse, but many times it's the whole story. So we read, you know, whatever this was, six or eight verses or whatever from Second Chronicles, and in and in Esther, it's you know a few chapters that covers uh, that whole uh, story about the dramatic irony. So it's it's less of a particular word or uh, phrasing of words and more just the storyline that we that we see this Um, somebody give us a summary then of the dramatic irony from 2nd Samuel 11 see your Bible trivia anybody remember 2nd Samuel 11 Yep, David and Bathsheba. So what's the dramatic irony here? Nathaniel, you follow up with that? Um, what are some more details about that? Joe? Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's one aspect of it. What other dramatic irony do we see in the story? So you're kind of touching on a few things here with the last part, right? He was trying to get Uriah to impregnate his wife to cover up the fact that she was already pregnant. Um, And that doesn't work because Uriah, like a good soldier, wouldn't be with a woman. Uh, But we also remember Uriah was from what nationality? A Hittite acting more like an an Israelite than David. So note the dramatic irony there. So there are actually a few different things here in this story uh, where we, we see all this. And of course, uh, this follows not too far after chapter 7, where God promised to build the house of David. Well, David goes about it in this illicit, sinful way. And, um, you know, that's it, certainly not what God had intended. But... The other dramatic irony in the whole story is... Go ahead, Joe. Okay, okay, all right. Okay, all right. Yeah, it certainly was... 
uh, dramatic turnabout there for, for David himself. Okay. His son died, but what came later? Solomon is the son of David and Bathsheba. Solomon is the one who builds the temple. Solomon is the one who continues the line of Christ. You know, these kind of things. So even in David's sin, we see the dramatic outcome of God's grace continuing, even in spite of what David did. Now, there were a lot of consequences. Obviously, not only did his son die, but then all of his uh, family ended up being a mess and all these problems. And, of course, Solomon was far from perfect. Um, and yet, um, we do see the blessing coming um, with this king of peace, Solomon, um, even in spite of their sin. All right, now... <clears throat> The greatest example of dramatic irony in the scriptures has to do with Christ himself, and in particular, the death of Christ. How is this a dramatic irony? Okay, all right. They were looking for the king, and they execute their king. How else is it a dramatic irony? I think you could include Judas in that list too, huh? And yeah, so you remember, um, I don't have this written down, let's see if I can find it quickly, I think it's in John 11, um, yeah, remember the words of Caiaphas, um, verse 49 of John 11, um, <clears throat> One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So they plot to put him to death, have one man die, and in that, salvation comes. So uh, we, we can see a number of things there. Joe mentioned uh, a few of them. Here's another example of, of everything being turned on its head. Uh, the, the death of Jesus actually is the victory. It's the, uh, it, it leads to our eternal life because his death takes the punishment for our sin, but since he was sinless, he wasn't going to stay dead anyway, because the only reason we die is because of sin. So um, his resurrection was assured because he was sinless, and, and all of this then guarantees uh, our salvation. So um, <clears throat> this is, you might say, one of the main reasons why I included uh, this dramatic irony uh, uh, category of figures of speech 
because ultimately we see it in Christ. Um, so, uh, anyway, comments or questions then? do we see that in the Exodus story? It's another dramatic irony there. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, Yeah, these great supposed wonderful gods that controlled everything couldn't control anything when the real God showed up. What else do we see? How about back in chapter 1? What happened in Exodus 1 that was dramatic irony? Okay. All right, that spills into chapter 2. But yes, exactly. That's that's all part of it. And in chapter 1, what were the Egyptians trying to do with the Israelites? Yeah, it didn't work at all, did it? <laughs> did the exact opposite, which culminated in and Moses and, and his own mother nursing him. Okay. And then later, Pharaoh's own daughter, right, um, basically raising him and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah, lots. Uh, we, we see this irony quite a bit. And doesn't it all go back to where we started? That the wicked, the seed of the serpent, try to harm the seed of the woman. And somewhere along the line, God turns that right on their head. And it may take years, maybe even centuries for that to happen. Uh, But in the end, God will stymie the wicked. They will fall into the pit that they dug for God's people. And so, (laughs) it's certainly an encouragement to us as the people of God. Um, So anyway, here are... um, a few examples of dramatic irony. Any comments or questions here then? That's why I was saying, you know, some of these that we've talked about are much more specific, you know, short phrase or clause or something, and this tends to be a broader section, um, though we we read a few that that are more limited in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, let's look at one more here then. Hyperbole. What is hyperbole? Okay. (laughs) 
yeah. All right. All right. Everyone's going, Mom. Right, isn't that hyperbole? Or everyone's watching me. Or, everyone's out to get me. Or Trump's a racist, you know, hyperbole. Uh, these kind of ideas. Um, all right. So let's look at a few examples of exaggeration. Uh, let's turn to Genesis chapter 4. Some of these maybe are more pedestrian, if you will. Some of them are more uh, highly significant theologically. Uh, but in Genesis 4 and um, verse 24, we see that in verse 23, Lamech, the seventh son through Cain from Adam, this perfect and complete evil man, you could say, uh, know what he, he says then, verse 24, If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. It's exaggeration here. He's not actually going to kill 490 people if somebody harms him. Um, but the point is, he, he's going to lash out quite uh, unlimited revenge, you might say, against everyone around him that harms him. Um, let's turn over a few pages then to chapter 11 and verse 4. Note the hyperbole. And this is... Uh, it's one of those that's just kind of comical. Uh, Hebrews 11, or sorry, Genesis 11, verse 4. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Then verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. So they're building this tower up to the heavens, but God still has to come down. Note the, the hyperbole, and might even be saying some dramatic irony here, right? They're going to storm the gates of heaven, and they're going to rule the world, and then they're scattered. Their language is confused. We can see some of both here in that way. So they try to be God, and obviously it doesn't work. Um, let's turn to Psalm 73. Another example here. Um, Psalm 73. <clears throat> All right, this is one of those. Uh, psalms that fit with what we were talking about in the last category of uh, the wicked prospering and it can be very discouraging for the people of God and here the psalmist, the psalm of Asaph is, is addressing that issue. But notice in the midst of it all when he's talking about the blessings of the wicked verse 7 it says their eyes bulge with abundance, or your translation may say fatness. They have more than heart could wish. And so there's this idea of exaggeration, hyperbole. Their eyes are bulging with fatness. And um, obviously that doesn't literally happen. Your eyes don't gain fat on them. <laughs> the rest of our body might, but... Uh, but not our eyes, but again, you see the point. Exaggeration here to show that basically they have everything they could possibly want. 
certainly see that among uh, many wicked uh, in our country and around the world. Let's turn then to um, Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5 and um, verses 29 and 30. All right, let me all get someone to read this here for us. I've been doing a lot of the reading. Matthew 5, 29, and 30. Okay, Daniel. Is Jesus actually telling us to pluck out our eye and cut off our hand? Should we read this literally as a plain reading just to go ahead and do this? Well, the obvious answer is that you don't think so because I don't see anybody with one less eye or two less eyes or one or two less hands. Obviously, you're not applying it, literally. And I think that's the right thing, because I think this is just simply hyperbole, an exaggeration to make a point. Here, the exaggeration is, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. But the point is that we should take sin so seriously that we would be willing to do anything to avoid sinning. Now this is in the context of lusting, but certainly we can say the same thing about cutting our tongue out, if our tongue is getting us in trouble. So uh, the principle can apply in in a variety of things. But again, this is exaggeration. Some people have applied this literally over the years. Um, And uh, let's see, was it Irenaeus? They castrated himself. I forget now which which one of the fathers was. Was it Irenaeus, I think? (laughs) He took that literally. Uh, I don't think it affected the desires of his heart any, but anyway, (laughs) that's what he did. He he took this literally, but that's not the intention. It's exaggeration. Make sure that you approach sin seriously and do what you need to do to avoid sin. Don't say, well, I, I really shouldn't sin, and then, you know, you go to the bar. Or, you know, I really shouldn't sin in this way, and yet you call the person who always gets you into trouble. Or you text with the person who loves to gossip. You know, if you really are serious about avoiding sin, you, right, you just don't do those things. And so that's his point. And he uses, Jesus uses exaggeration here, hyperbole, to make this point. All right, let's turn then to Matthew 18. And there are two examples of it here. In Matthew 18, and um, in verse 22, let's start in verse 21. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy-seven 
or seven times, 70 times seven, depending again how your translation says it here. All right, so similar to what Lamech said back in Genesis 4. And so it's really the same point. There's exaggeration. Jesus is not saying, okay, Peter, keep a tally up to 77 or 490, however we interpret that. Uh, That's not the point. Unlimited forgiveness is the point. Yeah. I think it, if you follow on the heels of verses 15 to 17, the answer would be no. Okay? If there is sin, it needs to be dealt with. And you bring it to the church or even to the civil authority, okay? and you address those things as needed. Yeah, well then, of course, then you can go to the next step and so forth. The right of appeal is given to us there in Matthew 18. It doesn't mean we're doormats uh, and just allow those things to continue. But that said, even if we go through the process of of, um, either church discipline or civil government discipline, um, there still needs to be forgiveness within us. That doesn't mean we necessarily go back to the way it was. It doesn't necessarily mean um, we act like it never happened and, and so on and so forth. But there still needs to be a sense of forgiving the person. And Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I'm reminded of uh, Paul's words in Romans 12, you know, be at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. And I think we can apply this in this way too. Forgive people as much as it depends on you. You know, it, from our spe- perspective, from our heart, hey, we're not holding bitterness. Hey, we're forgiving them. Well, that doesn't mean that we just you know welcome them back with open arms necessarily. And um, so, you know, if if you have a situation where uh, there's abuse or adultery. Uh, you might forgive the person, but you know, uh, you might not be able to, to stay married, um, or at least be separated for a time, or you know, something like that. Um, so uh, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, I think in some cases, forgiveness will help, and you can get back together. Other times, you know, when you offer forgiveness, other times. Um, you offer the forgiveness, and it doesn't change them at all. And so now you have to respond a little bit differently. Um, but still, within your heart, you cannot be holding that grudge and that anger and that that evil. Um, and that's what Jesus is addressing. And even more so with, with Peter. Peter is... He was basically thinking he was being extremely generous by saying seven times. And Jesus is saying, no, we need to forgive more than that. Which leads then to the parable of 
uh, forgiveness. And uh, here we have the king and this this uh, uh, this this servant, and he's in debt ten thousand talents. That's basically millions and millions of dollars. You know, um, when I when I typed this up. I figured out it was about $10 million, but I didn't double-check it now in today's value of the dollar, but it might even be twice as much that as that now, $20 to $25 million. But the point is, the contrast then is 100 denarii, and that's just a few hundred bucks. So you got millions of dollars versus a few hundred bucks. So the king forgives this guy millions of dollars, but then he goes out and demands a few hundred dollars from someone else. And that's the, the, the idea of forgiveness. God has forgiven us the millions of dollars, if you will, of our sins. Then we certainly should forgive people who only owe us a few hundred bucks, as it were, in terms of their sins against us. Um, and, um, but again, to Michelle's question, just because we forgive... That doesn't mean we forget completely. And just because we forgive doesn't mean that we just walk right back into a situation where we're going to be abused. Um, there are other factors to consider. That said, you know, forgiveness in the heart is necessary. Um, and so, um, so anyway, just a few few thoughts here and the point here is exaggeration to make a point hyperbole and so you know even to Michelle's question when you're using hyperbole you're not covering everything are you you're making a point but there are other points to make and so that's why we need to be careful when hyperbole is used not to apply it in every situation uh, and to account for other things All right. Um, other comments or questions? Yeah, John. Well, I, I, I would agree. I, I think a lot of it has to do with us, but you know, even if we offer forgiveness to somebody, that can really help them too. So it kind of depends on the situation. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, Daniel can attest, we say many times in our home, sorry, saying you're sorry doesn't mean a whole lot. Yeah, okay? I want to see a changed life. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Quit shouting at your brother or sister. Don't just say you're sorry. Change what you're doing. (laughs) So, yeah. But I think these other points and questions that you're bringing up helps to make the point. Hyperbole is an exaggeration to make a particular point. There are other points to be made. (laughs) Uh, But at least in that way, Jesus says, take sin seriously. The other point is, yeah, you don't actually want to mutilate your body. Um, that that isn't a good thing, or you know, whatever it happens to be. So, um, 
So anyway, well, um, I'm going to stop here then in our study and take a break. Uh, There are more genres for us to look at and some things for us to uh, examine about those different genres. There's some other uh, aspects of interpreting scripture uh, to to cover yet, but I'm going to take a break now and Joe's going to lead a study for a little while here on uh, prophecy and Ezekiel and and so forth, starting next Sunday. So uh, we'll look forward to that. So let's pray then as we conclude. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we uh, are thankful for the the dramatic irony of all history that uh, the Messiah comes and is rejected by his own people. Uh, the Messiah is killed, and yet that brings life and salvation. Thank you for, for that, uh, that great irony of, of life and, uh, and so on. We thank you, uh, Lord, then for, for your great grace to us. And uh, again, we th- are thankful, Lord, that you have given us your word that we might know these things. And again, Lord, as we have over these last, um, whatever, 10 weeks or whatever it's been, we've looked at some of these uh, figures of speech and other things about your word, we, we again ask that you would help us to, to know your word better, that we might know you better and uh, what you have done. So we ask then uh, as we come for our worship that you would strengthen us, and that you would be with us, and that you would grow us in grace, uh, that you might be honored in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>